Most people agree that this book, First Chronicles, was penned by Ezra the priest, who led the return from captivity in Babylon for the rebuilding of the temple. And then, of course, Nehemiah came later to rebuild and fortify the walls. We'll get to those books, actually, a little bit down the road uh, as we go forward verse by verse in these historical books. But the context is important because if you remember when we finished Second Kings, that Judah, the southern kingdom, the southern tribe, was taken away into captivity. And off they went to Babylon. And the three waves of the Babylonian captivity, they were complete. The temple was destroyed. The city was burnt down. And the final group of captives were taken away. And only the poor, the very poor, were left in the land. And so God had said through Jeremiah the prophet during that time that the land of Judah and Israel itself would be vacant from his people of covenant for 70 years because the people owed the Lord 70 years of the seventh year Sabbath and he was going to do what he said he was going to do. And so they had to, the Judah was in captivity for 70 years. The northern kingdoms, the northern tribes, they just disappeared and dissipated into the midst of the people. Now some would have made it back being mixed in with the tribe of Judah in the south or things like that. And some may have survived the Syrian captivity and then the Babylonian captivity and somehow stayed in the land. But as a whole, about 100 years have gone by since Assyria destroyed the northern kingdom and 70 years since Judah was taken away by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. And so now, led by Ezra, they're coming back into the land. This remnant of tens of thousands of people, just a couple ten thousand, you know, they're coming back. And they have land that they inherited, their parents had inherited from the Lord from the time of Joshua. When Joshua conquered the land, they cast lots in the different tribes, Zebulun and Naphtali and whatnot, but particularly because it's Judah in the south, the Judean groups of people, they had their land. And so as they were coming back, their descendants. So think about this, like the younger people grew up in captivity and now they're coming back at maybe 50 years of age, maybe 30 years of age, and they've heard about the motherland, they've heard about the homeland, and now they're going back, and they have a right, they're heirs, they have an inheritance, they have a right to the land by God's decree. So the ancestry is super important, and as we go through these early chapters, up to chapter 9, when we get to King Saul is introduced to us, you get a lot focused on Judah and the people of Judah, then you get the other tribes as well, but the significance of these names and this land and these, these people is because it connects everyone to their ancestry. So if you've ever done Ancestry.com for your family or someone has for your family or you're familiar with your family history, there's a legacy in that and there's importance to that for various reasons, whether it's your ethnicity and your spiritual heritage and stuff like that. And so that's why Chronicles is important because for those returning, this was the book of registry to identify who they're linked to and how they would go forward in the land returning from the captivity. So that's our background to the book. So it's really about registry, reclaiming, and rebuilding, which is what Ezra and Nehemiah in those books are about. Now, it starts with Adam. It's the very first verse, Adam. And it covers the pre-flood world, Adam, Enoch, Noah. That's about 1,500 years. Then after the flood, it's the three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. That begins the Ice Age, about a 500-year period that brings us to verse 27. And so verse 27 is our key verse tonight, where we get this simple phrase, because everyone's been named once, or, you know, a little thing about them, like Nimrod, whatever. But we get to verse 27, and we read, And Abram, who is Abraham? And thus the father of faith, as he's called, or his original name, Abram, means uh, noble father, father of nobility, When God changed his name to Abraham, it became father of nations, father of a multitude. So he's the first person we see that gets a name upgrade. Sarai, Sarah, got a name upgrade as well, his wife. For she was princess, but then she became a princess of a multitude, mother of a multitude. So she went from princess to mother of a multitude. Remember the woman who was barren. So her name upgrade was like, you're princess, you're daddy's girl, you're your husband's apple of his eye. But when God changed her name, when she believed the promises of God, he changed her name to Sarah, which is mother of a multitude. So God gave the name upgrade to Abram, is, who is Abraham, Sarai, who is Sarah. And then, you know, we see in the Bible this happens, not the least of which is uh, Simon becomes Peter. Simon means like a word, and Peter means stone or rock, and Jesus changed his name. And the idea, and of course, Jacob, the grandson of Abram, 
Abraham. He was heel grabber because he grabbed Esau's heel when the twins were born. And then God changed his name after wrestling with God to Prince of God. So we see in the Bible there are times where God gives people a name change. We saw that Nebuchadnezzar gave people a name change because he's Nebuchadnezzar. Well, that's not the same, right? Meshach, Shagah, Abednego, they, this, that's not the real names, but that's the names they were given by Nebuchadnezzar. But when God changes your name, that's a good thing. And whenever God changes your name, it's an upgrade. So there, the, the Abram becoming Abraham is the upgrade. And, of course, Abram is the father of faith. Him and Sarah had the miracle son Isaac. Isaac had Jacob and Esau. Jacob is changed to Israel. Thus, we get the 12 tribes of Israel, which comes up in chapter 2. And the nation of Israel is established in the covenant with God, with the Mosaic covenant, some 500 years after Abram became Abraham. They get the law, the Ten Commandments, and all that. And then they're entrusted with God's word. And the promised Messiah from the fall of Adam and the second Adam, Christ, runs through the genealogy that is included in this text. And actually, we'll see on Tuesday night how it runs through Nathan, Bathsheba's son, not Solomon, but Nathan, Bathsheba's son, through whom Mary the Virgin was born in that genealogy. We'll see that on Tuesday night. So Israel was to be set aside and set apart, beginning with Abraham, their father, because John the Baptist talked about Abraham. Jesus talked about Abraham. And the New Testament writers with the Holy Spirit talked about Abraham. He is pivotal and key for everything related to the gospel, which we're going to see tonight. But he is the head. He's the father of faith, but he's the beginning of the Jewish people. And in that, from the Abrahamic covenant to the Mosaic covenant with the nation of Israel, Israel was entrusted with the scriptures and the genetic gene line through the tribe of Judah by which Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, the Son of God, the Son of Man, would come into the world. So that's why these names are so important. And that's why when you open your New Testament and you read Matthew, it says Jesus Christ, the Son of Abraham, the Son of David, in the first verse. Because it's a critical elements to the promise of the Messiah, who we're singing to tonight, praising the Lord too, right? All right, so now with this background, Abraham is that guy. And because God changed his name to, from Abram to Abraham, we realize the significance of the upgrade and when God gets a hold of your life. And so when I see this right away, I think of 2 Corinthians 5, where it says that if anyone be in Christ, they're a new creation. All things have passed away. All things are new. Or as Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. We're born once with this identity for an Adam, all sin and die. But when we come to Christ, we're born again with a new identity and we're made alive. As many as received him, he gave them the right to become the son of God, and we're made alive. So the moment we give our life to Christ, we get the upgrade. And even though we may not get an Abram to Abraham name change, our position before God, our standing in the universe, is we pass from death to life, from darkness to light, from hell to heaven, and we pass from condemnation to justification and humiliation to glory. That's what we get through our faith in Jesus Christ. And Abram, who becomes Abraham, is a type of so many things of the glory of Jesus Christ. And tonight, we're going to look at our father of faith, Abram, Abraham. And as we go through this, I want you to think of, if you Google Abraham, or if you use a concordance, or as I use my Schofield Bible from the 80s, and you look at Abraham, there's like 70 topics and things related to Abraham. Like Abraham tithe, Abraham worship, Abraham did this, and Abraham did that, and Abraham rescued Lot, and all the stories. But tonight... We're going to focus on three things with Abraham. Abraham was called by God to a life of faith. Abraham was justified by faith. And Abraham had a work of faith. So we're going to connect the father of faith with his faith. But in all that, keep this in mind. Of the different things associated with Abraham, when we think about his call to a life of faith, being justified by faith, and his work of faith, which the Old Testament and New Testament affirm those three things equally, is that above all else you might say that really gets our attention, not even beyond being the father of faith and even the father of world religions, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, because, of course, Ishmael is a son not of the promise but of flesh, and Islam traces their whole heritage to him. He's called the friend of God. Abraham, by God, is called the friend of God. And, you know, if you know your Bible very well, that's a very unique title or description or somebody. See, we can get up at our memorial, or your memorial, or my memorial, and you can say, well, joy was this, joy was that. And, you know, someone might be speaking a word of the Lord and say, well, you know, it was this and that, whatever, and we'll want to say nice things. But can you imagine, through the prophets and by the Holy Spirit, 
at the end of your life in eternity where God says centuries later, Abraham was my friend. Like, I mean, that's just the, like, the friend of God. So keep that in mind as we look at this man who walked by faith. And I could focus on Sarah. I could focus on the matriarchs as well as the patriarchs. But tonight we're just really focused on Abraham and the application goes for men and women alike. So the first thing I want to point out with this Abraham is called, to, uh, called by God to a life of faith. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 12 because that's where it begins. And as I said earlier, every story has a beginning. Adam is the beginning of humanity, which is the first verse of chapter 1 of Chronicles. But Abraham, there in verse 27, his beginning is introduced to us in Genesis, essentially Genesis chapter 12. There in Genesis chapter 12, at around 2000 B.C., 4,000 years ago, in a post-flood world by about 500 years, and now the Ice Age, post-Ice Age world, he lived in Ur of the Chaldeans, in that fertile crescent, you know, the Syria-Iraq swath that goes through the Middle East there. And we're told by the book of Joshua, Joshua, in the end of his life, explained what Abraham's family was like. They were idolaters. They were all idolaters. They had false worship system. Now, after the flood, in a post-flood world, we had the famous story of the Tower of Babel, where humanity unified in one language to become their own god, if you will. And there's a lot of things that go with that story. But in the end, they were scattered. The Lord scattered the nations, confused the languages to our own benefit, that we couldn't unify for such evil, and spread us abroad. And in that, as Abraham's descendants were spread abroad, eventually about 500 years later, they were following a false worship system. Now, when you study ancient civilizations and cultures, and I've mentioned this especially going through Genesis, when you do your research, you will find that most ancient cultures and societies have some commonality in their beliefs, whether it's accurate or skewed. But there is a, essentially a story of an original man, an original man and woman, the story of a great flood of judgment. And so those two stories exists in almost every known ancient culture, regardless of the continent of which they existed, of the six continents by which humans live on. An original man created, and a flood of judgment that affected him. So we find this in cave writings, we find this in tablet writings, and like, for example, the Institute for Creation Research, if you go on their website, they have all this stuff chronicle that you can look into, and it is fascinating. So in other words, when the time of Abraham, when he was born into the world 4,000 years ago into an idolatrous family, he's living in a, a family shaped by false religious system as a carryover from the Tower of Babel 500 years before, and there might have been a remnant of the belief in one God. There might have been. There might have been a remnant of a belief of a judgment from that one God on sinful humanity. We just don't know. But we do know from the Holy Spirit in the book of Joshua, it tells us that his dad was an idolater. His dad didn't walk with the Lord, didn't believe in the one God of the universe, not at all. So we read in chapter 12, verse 1, God appears to Abraham or speaks to Abraham and says this, and he says, get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to the land that I will show you, I will make you a great nation, I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the call of God on Abraham's life. And of course, it was on Sarah's life as well, because they were married at this time. Abraham lived in that region to the north of Israel. The Lord initiated it, you know, this definitely like, you know, predetermined election kind of stuff. Abraham didn't wake up and say, hey, I'm going to serve the Lord, the God of the universe. No, God came to him. We love him because he first loved us. God came to him. David said, no one seeks after the Lord. No, not one. But the Lord reveals himself to us. And he reveals himself to you and me in our timeline through the conviction of the Holy Spirit confirming the gospel message, Jesus said. That we'll be convicted of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And we'll realize that Jesus is the Savior, the one and only Savior. There are no other saviors. His name is Jesus. And no one comes to the Father but through him. So God initiates things, and here God initiated this call on Abraham's life where he says you need to leave your country and your family. And isn't that the gospel thing about when Jesus said, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Peter and Andrew like, we got to go, pop, mom. And John and James, they left their, their dad, they're mending the nets. And they're like, we got to go, dad. When Jesus called the apostles, he said, follow me. 
And it was immediate, it was absolute, and he's the Lord, and they did follow him. The sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder, there's no negotiating the call of God. When God calls us, when you're under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, a harvest crusade, or your friend's sharing with you, or your neighbor's sharing with you, or you're hearing something on the radio like Raul Reese watching TV, plotting to kill your family, and Pastor Chuck's on TV, and you're under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, it's now. Today is the day of salvation. The call of God is today. That's, that's why it's so important to have a, a definitive time in your life or a moment that you know like you made a decision for Christ when you went from Abram to Abraham. And so here God reveals himself and says, your dad's religion is not your religion. Your dad's community and culture is not your community and culture. I am calling you out and I'm taking you to this place where I'm going to make a nation of you and in you all nations shall be blessed. I will bless you, you'll be a blessing, and all nations or all families of the earth shall be blessed in you. So that's the beginning. This is his call to a life of faith. I mean, what's, what takes more faith than to say goodbye to your family indefinitely, load up your goods with your wife, and go to a place you don't know where you're going to live, to a job you don't know what you have, to a group of people that you don't know will even receive you. I mean, that's the step of faith. If you've ever moved across country or changed jobs or started a whole new beginning, like uh, Valerie Dean just got married, right? Her and Tim moved to Tucson, Arizona, and they're starting a new life, and they're newlyweds, and that's exciting, and, you know, they got their life, they're pl- planning together, but, hey, they never lived in Tucson before. You don't really know, you can scout Tucson, but you don't know what Tucson looks like till you live there. I've been there for pastor's conferences. But, you know, the postcard of visiting is a lot different than the reality of living, right? Yes and amen? I mean, you can get a postcard from Maui and go to Maui for a week and think, well, it'd be great to live in Maui, to live in Maui for three months and realize there's nothing to do in Maui. Unless you're on vacation. I got that with Vermont. What a beautiful postcard. Until you live there for a year and the devil beats you up day in and day out. And you realize there's always more to it. It's a step of faith. It's a huge step of faith to go out and visit someplace on a mission trip or just to go represent Christ somehow, some way. But to move, to like to start your life, to leave everything you know in Orange County and go move to Tucson, that is a, you know, that's a, that's a big new beginning. You got to figure out your favorite, where you shop, where you, where you go to church, trying to agree what church you both like. It's, it's like, it's, a, it's an adventure. It's an adventure of faith. And it is a, it's, when we get the name change, Abram to Abraham, where God's working us toward that, and he calls us, he's going to always call us to faith. So I share with you from Hebrews 11 now, a, a connecting verse to this, a, a, a fuller scope. So when we're looking at Genesis, it's almost like black and white TV on the, the topic. But when we look at the New Testament, we get the full color, all right? So in Hebrews 11, we're told that, you know, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence not yet seen. And so that's the definition of faith. So if you can understand it, manipulate it, control it, it's not faith. Faith is hearing something, believing something, and acting upon it without having obtained it and seen it. Then in Hebrews 11:6, we're told that without faith, it's impossible to please God, because those who come to him must believe he is, and he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So God requires us to live by faith. The body of Christ, worship generation. We're saved by faith, and we're called to live a life of faith. And God's going to stir us up because he doesn't want us in a rut, because that's just a smaller version of the grave. And we're either growing and going forward, or we're dying and we're going nowhere. So we are called to live a life of faith. And we're challenged to do that. We can, take, we can choose to take steps of faith, or we can have God just kind of kick us from behind and, and, and make us take steps of faith. You might suddenly lose your job. And suddenly you need a new job. And like, your prayer life got a lot sharper when you lost your job, didn't it? Oh, yes, it did. We got some in our family right now, in our extended family, that they lost their job. And it was a good job. And they got a good living standard. Suddenly it's like, hey, they're a little more serious. They're a little more serious about everything right now. Their head's on a swivel. So you can choose to live by faith, and you know you can go through routine going to church and doing the Jesus thing, but man, when you lose your job or someone you love passes away, they, hey, you'll find out what, what kind of faith you have. Sooner or later, you have to live by faith if you're saved by faith. And for Abraham in this beginning, where he's told he's going to be a blessing to people, so we get the definition of faith, the necessity of faith, but then there in Hebrews eleven eight. We read this, and this is Abraham. So, by faith, Abraham obeyed 
when he was called to go out of the place to which he would receive an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. That's the New Testament expansion of what we just read in Genesis. So we read about his faith, uh, an act of faith, a living faith, called to live the life of faith, his beginning there with God initiating it, calling him, and saying, you got to leave everything you know, and whether the family's on board or not, it doesn't even matter. You're coming now. Today, follow me, and you got to go, and that's it. Jesus is Lord of all or is not Lord at all. And, and Abraham was called, and he had to go. And it's hard to say goodbye to people when you don't know when you might see them again, your parents and your cousins, and they might say, oh, please don't go, please don't leave this or that. Listen, you got to go. Because if you don't take the first step of faith, you'll never take the second step of faith. And your life won't be anything what it's meant to be. You've got to have the faith right out the gate to say, I'm here, Jesus, I'm all yours. And that's how Abraham was. And Abraham went as the father of faith, the friend of God. He went not knowing where he was going. Not knowing where he was going. I remember years ago when I worked for Billabong, and I told Graham Stapleberg, my boss, that uh, I turned down this three-year contract they had for me in December of 99. And he said, well, what are you, you going to do? I'm like, uh, God's going to put me in full-time ministry again. He put that on my heart in prayer. He said, but you don't have a job right now. I was like, oh, no, no, no. Don't you have a mortgage to pay on the 15th of December? Yeah, yeah, I do. And you're calling me to quit your job on December 6th? Yeah, yeah, I am. And I told him, hey, I'd prefer that he tell me what I'm going to do before I quit my job with you, but he told me I have to quit my job with you before he tells me what I'm going to do when I'm done with you. He attended a Calvary Chapel at the time. And he's like, wow. And you know the story. Before my mortgage was due, Brian Broderson called me from England in the middle of the night, his time, and said, Joey, I'm coming back to California. I'm going to be on staff with Pastor Chuck, and I'm inviting you to come on staff full-time at Calvary Costa Mesa. That news came about five days to seven days after I told Graham Stapleberg, I'm not going to do the three-year Billabong deal. Abraham went not knowing where he was going, And you think, wow, that's kind of scary. Yeah, it is, isn't it? But Jesus is on the throne, isn't he? And to obey is better than the sacrifice. See, because you can do church stuff. Well, I'm going to give a little more this week or something. I'm like, I'm going to help out in the children's ministry. I'm going to bring in the sign or something. You can think of things to do to to not quit your job and have to have a mortgage due, right? Like, let's try and do it this way. But that's religion, so don't do religion. Do relationship and do faith. Obey the Lord and do faith. That's what Abraham did. He went not knowing where he's going. And we're told also in the New Testament that in so doing, where it says in 12.3, Genesis 12.3, that all families be blessed in him, that is actually a shadow of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the nation of Israel came from him. And some other nations came through Ishmael and the children through Keturah. Who came, whose wife after Sarah passed away. But the gospel came through Israel, but through the church, it goes to all nations. Preach this gospel to what? All nations. So in his very calling to a life of faith, God was foreshadowing that the gospel would come through him, through his descendants, that the gospel would come through his descendant, Jesus Christ, and that all nations would be blessed in him. And truly tonight, as we're gathered here in the diversity of who we are and our personalities, the distinctions of our ethnicity, we fulfill Genesis 12, 3 through the power of the Holy Spirit and the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And praise the Lord for Abraham, who went, who obeyed, obedient faith, and went not knowing where he was going. So if you ever don't know where you're going, that's okay. That's a good thing. Because the Lord's in control. Now, Of course, we know where we're going with Jesus, and we know he's in control, and we know he saved us and redeemed us for a purpose, and we're going to heaven in glory. So ultimately, we know where we're going, but in this journey of life, like, that's just how it goes sometimes. That's why we're told, you know, God closes doors and he opens doors. That's what he, you know, he says that. I open door, a door no man can close, and I close a door no no man can, can open. And we want God to close doors, because if we don't know where we're going, when he says no, it gets us closer to yes, Right? Yes and amen. I used to not like closed doors. And then the Lord let me go through a few I shouldn't have gone through. 
And you know, sometimes you don't want what's behind that door. So it's good to let God close doors. And it's okay to not know where you're going. Just make sure you know who you're going with and how you're going. We're going with Jesus and we're going in faith. So he's the father of faith. And this, this final thought of application now from him in the Old Testament, even the type of the gospel and the commendation in the New Testament in Hebrews is this. And I've been thinking about this. And I want to go on me, but I just have to tie this in. When I won the Pipe Masters Surfing Championship in 1984, and I was on the podium, and I said this phrase, dreams come true. It's a very famous phrase. One of the things that makes that so memorable to my peers is that's right when VHS videos came out in 1984. And that Pipe Masters video from 1984 where I said that became the most watched video in the surf culture in the first eight years or more of VHS TV. Every surfer around the world watched me win the Pipe Masters over and over and over and over again and hear me say, dreams come true, dreams come true, dreams come true. Then five years later, we did the movie Sunriders where I shared my testimony about the emptiness of winning the Pipe Masters. That won all kinds of awards. That movie went around the world and became the best well-known Christian surf movie ever to this day. Where the, the vanity of it all. Then years later in 07, right when we came here after being at Big Calvary, Colin McLean from Calvary Costa Mesa, who worked for CBS at the time, helped me do my movie called Beyond the Dream. So essentially my life is, you know, from the dream of being the king of the pipeline to the age 24, that's the dream. I win it. Dreams come true. And then within a few years being in ministry, serving the Lord now for 35 years as a pastor, that's beyond the dream. Okay, so I have dreams come true, beyond the dream. But I've been thinking as I'm working on the book, There's more to it than just dreams come true and beyond the dream. And it really came to me just a few weeks ago. Your life, listen, your life, your life is more than big dreams. And your life is more than going forth from the accomplishment of your big dreams. In Jesus Christ, Abram to Abraham and Sarai to Sarai, Sarai to Sarah, your life is a destiny. Our lives are a destiny. It's more than your dream. And it's bigger than your life beyond your dream. Because we go from glory to glory. And there's different seasons. And there's the seasons of being young and in love and moving to Tucson. And there's a season of having lots of kids and it's chaos, like Luke and Bell in Florida. Or actually more chaos with Jake and Leah here. And, and then there's a season of like, uh, their kids are teenagers. And then you're empty nesters, if you will, if you, if you have kids and you raise kids. And then your season of taking care of your elderly parents and being with them and being there for them, even to the day when they don't know who you are while they're still alive. And there's a season of being there with your adult siblings in their 60s and 70s and how you're all navigating eternity. And the grandkids growing up. And See, it's more than a dream, our life. It's more than dream big dreams. And it's more than beyond the dream. Our lives... From the fall of Adam to redemption, the second Adam is called to destiny. And God called Abraham when he didn't even know who the Lord was and called him out and called him to. And in Adam, all sin, but in Christ, all are made alive. And we are called out from sin and called to something more, to a life of faith. It's more than a dream and bigger than beyond the dream. It's a destiny. And listen, WG Body Christ, you only get one chance. So if you feel good about it, good for you. If you don't, snap out of your stupor. Because today's the day, tonight's the night. Because once you're gone, you're gone. And you don't get a second chance. How many people have stepped into eternity, billions, and said, oh, when they stepped into eternity, like, oh, can I go back and do all that? No, you can't. You got to live it by faith right now and go get it. Now, the second one is this. Abraham justified by faith. So now we go forward in Genesis. We go now to Genesis 15. Now, I I focus on this Tuesday night. So if you're here Tuesday night, this is going to seem familiar. But so he's called to a life of faith. And then in Genesis 15, he'd gone to the promised land. He was living the life in the promised land. But, you know, God promised him that all families in the world would be blessing him. And he can't produce a child because his wife is barren and he's older. And he's like, man, this isn't working like Eliezer, my servant, is going to, you know, my right-hand man is going to be heir to everything that God's promised me. How's that, how's that going to work? How's that going to look? And so right after he'd been delivered, 
he had fought the battle against Chedorlaomer and the kings when he rescued Lot. He cries out to the Lord in, Ge- in Genesis 15, verse 2. Abraham says this, and he's still called Abraham at this point. He, he hasn't gotten his name changed, but he's moving toward it. Uh, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? By this time, Abraham was wealthy. Then Abraham said, look, you, you've given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. In other words, Eliezer's kid. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. So God responds saying, this one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And as Abraham looked up at those stars, he looked up at those stars, which his fathers had worshipped in idolatrous practices. He looked up at those stars, and he saw the God of heaven who promised, promises beyond man and men and their abilities. He looked at those stars, and he thought of the person of the Lord, And the promise of the Lord. And we are told as he looked at those stars, he believed in the Lord. He believed in the person of God. And he believed in the promise of God. He believed in the Lord. And that the Lord, when he saw Abraham's belief, God accounted it him for righteousness. He was declared righteous before God, not because he did any one good deed, kept the Ten Commandments, or helped a, a little lady cross the street, or, you know, someone's car died and they helped, you know, push the car out of the road. He or gave $5 to a homeless person outside of Albertsons. He is declared righteous because he simply believed in God and what God spoke to him. That's his righteousness. It's, we're told it's imputed to his account. In other words, like, it's like you have a bank account of, you know, uh, in Adam all sin and are dead, or you know, in Christ all are made alive. You have like a spiritual bank account, and his bank account per se was empty, but when God declared the promise, he believed it was like the bank account just filled up, like just add zeros, just filled up. It was imputed or reckoned or given to his account. That's what happened. Now, in the New Testament, this is a profound event, as it's expanded for us in Romans. Now, I'm going to read a little bit of Romans for you. And stay with me because this is important. So that phrase that he believed God and was accounted for righteousness is critical. That verse, as I shared on Tuesday night, is actually quoted three times by the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. All three times, listen, very important, body of Christ, church of Jesus Christ. That Genesis 15, 6 is quoted by the Holy Spirit to tell us believers, disciples of Christ, that we are saved through faith in the person and the work of Jesus, not in any good act, moral or immoral, that we've ever done in our life. That we pass from death to life, from hell to heaven, from darkness to light, from condemnation to justification, when we simply look upon Jesus and believe in who he is and what he's promised to do, forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As Abraham, in black and white, if you will, did so with that promise for an heir to come from him, The church does every time we hear the gospel and people are born again and respond to the Lord. It's the same thing. And so in Romans chapter 4, when Paul the Apostle was explaining theology of being saved by faith and grace and justified by what the Lord's done, not a good work that we could do to go to heaven, which eliminates every world religion and human philosophy and only leaves us with Jesus and biblical Christianity, He said in Romans 4, verse 1, What shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to his flesh? In other words, his own self-righteousness. For if Abraham was justified by works or his good deeds, he had something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? It says that Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but debt. So in other words, God would be a debtor to Abraham if he earned it, but God's not a debtor to Abraham. Because Abraham received it. He believed and God counted to him. Now the rest of Romans says, continues on with this in a pretty chunky theology. But I'll skip ahead to verse 16 of chapter 4. And I'm going to read this. And so this is expanding this thought. And I want you to stay with me because this is super important for understanding how we're saved through faith in Jesus and our positional righteousness. Because you and I, in Jesus' name, must stir down the grave one day in our future. And on that day, I want you to have full confidence 
to stare at the grave and not blink. I want you to be full of courage and confidence in that moment when you must transition from this dimension to the next, when you know Jesus is coming and you're gasping for air. I want you to be so sure of who you believed in and you're persuaded he's able to keep that which you've committed to him until that day. I want you in Jesus' name to stand strong and show your greatest act of faith with your last breath of life. Because he will not come for you and save you because you did one good deed in your human experience. He will come and save you because you believe in him for who he is, what he's done, and has promised to you. And I don't want any demon of hell or delusion of men to move you from that from now to the day of the Lord in your life. Romans 4, 16. Therefore, our salvation, our righteousness is of faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed or the offspring, not only those who are of the law, that is the Jewish people, but those who are the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. In the presence of him who we believe, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope and hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations according to what God what was spoken, because God said, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in his faith, that is Abraham, he did not consider his own body already past dead, since he was 100 years old, or the deadness of Sarah's womb, because she was barren. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he, God, had promised, he was able to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to his account or to him, but for us. It shall be that same righteousness shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised up because of our justification. And here's the kicker, body of Christ. One of those famous passages, and this is our context, coming from Father Abraham, the friend of God. Therefore... Okay, but what's this all mean from Genesis? Therefore, having been justified by faith, you and me, body of Christ, worship generation, faith in Jesus, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulations produce perseverance and perseverance character and character, hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So see, Abraham, there in Genesis 15, 6, being justified, believing God being justified is the black and white version of what we have in full color in the beautiful glory and fullness of Jesus Christ. The things of the Old Testament are shadows of things to come, but Christ is the fullness, and that's what we have tonight. We are justified the same way, and the result of that for our application is this, is what? It's peace. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our peace isn't our best day. Our lack of peace isn't our worst day. Our peace is Jesus Christ on the throne our Savior, delivered up for us and raised up for our justification. That is our peace. Church of Jesus Christ, WG. Don't let any commotion of men or conniving of the devil move you from this peace. The peace of assurance of being justified by faith and having positional righteousness through faith in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because our confidence is in him and who he is and what he's done. And that hope Hebrews tells us, is an anchor to our soul. Oh, you know, when I walk out of a room with someone stepping in eternity, like John, our good friend John, who's been gone now for over a year, and I kiss him on the forehead, and we sing a praise song together, and I know he's going, he knows he's going, and he gives me a thumbs up. I'll tell you how I walk out of that room with confidence. Therefore, having been justified by faith, I have peace with God through my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. John's got peace, I got peace, and I'm not playing religious games when I look at him and I say, I'll see you in glory on the other side. I mean business, because it's kingdom business, and it's the great reality. WG, live the life of faith like Abraham. Walk by faith, 
Press toward faith. Choose faith. Move toward faith. And let the peace of God ruin our hearts because we're justified by our faith. And we're declared righteous by our faith in the person, the work, and the promises of Jesus Christ. Abraham is our father. He's from noble father to father of of nations, Sarai, princess, to mother of nations. And this is the faith. We read of Sarah that she didn't consider her own barren womb. She She didn't waver at the promises of God, but she knew God could produce it. Thus, Isaac, the son of promise, is called what? Laughter. Because when you look in the mirror and see what a fool you can be and you know you're saved by grace, that should make you laugh. At least it does for me sometimes. Like, <laughs> you're so saved by grace. Just stay out of the way. Stay in your lane and stay out of the way. Which brings us to our third point tonight. So our application, live that life of faith, that destiny, go get it. Stand in this righteousness and let that peace ruin your heart. Let, let your victory be not something you're trying to earn, but something that's already earned and we're coming from it. And then finally, Abraham's work of faith, which brings us to Genesis 22. Now, in Genesis 22, this is where Abraham's faith was tested, right? Because God gave him the son of promise, which was Isaac. And Isaac grew up. And then we're told in Genesis chapter 22, verse 1, that it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. Now we got full Abraham, the full name, and said to him, yeah, here I am. And he said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah which happens to be where Jesus was crucified at Calvary, the highest piece of land there in Jerusalem. That's where Jesus was crucified, Golgotha. 2,000 years before he was crucified, God tells Abraham to take Isaac there. Offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son. He split the wood for the burnt offering, arose and went to the place which God had told him, Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad, the boy and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. That's very important. This is Abraham's faith. God says, offer up your son to me through whom I've made all these promises to bless the world. And we're we're a reflection of it now, 4,000 years later. I mean, every promise in Jesus is in this kid, Isaac. He's just every promise. You know, we say the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. They're all in this kid on this day at Mount Moriah. This kid has to live, or he's actually a young man at this point. He has to live. I mean, God's true to his word. God doesn't lie. It's impossible for God to lie. And so he's, because there's none by greater to swear by, he swears by his own name. And he says the promises are in this kid, not Ishmael or anyone else. Isaac? He's testing him. Offer up your son. Wow. Now, faith and positional righteousness at times, it's just so beyond us what God's doing. We have to obey. And we're told in Hebrews 11 concerning this that he obeyed. That by faith he obeyed and offered up his son. When he was tested, he obeyed and offered up his son. He did not withhold his only son. But we're told in Hebrews 11 that He considered his son as good as dead, but knew that he'd be raised up and receive him back, as if you will, in a resurrected manner. So as the New Testament interprets Genesis 22, we're told when he said to the fellows, hey, you guys stay here, the boy and I will come back. He knew, even if his son stopped breathing as a sacrifice, that God would restore his life. He knew And he believed in every cell of his body who God was and the promises of God. And when he looked at those stars so many decades before and said, from your seed, the nations will be blessed. And he believed God was coming from righteousness. He knew on this day when he was tested that he would not come down from that mountain alone. That Isaac would come down with him. And that's a very inspiring faith for all of us. It's an obedient faith, and it inspires us to just be obedient whether we understand what's going on or not. And he did, and he went. And so he went up there, and then we read later on in the same chapter that the angel Lord said, don't sacrifice your son, and God showed him the ram, and then later on, verse 14, it says, the Lord will provide for himself a sacrifice not your son. And of course, Jesus Christ was sent by the Father to die on the cross for our sins in that very same place 2,000 years later. So Abraham and Isaac is a type of the Father giving us his son. 
at this spot. It's an amazing story. He's the friend of God, and he's the father of faith. And that's the way it played out, and that's, that's how it happened. Now, in verse 15 of chapter 22, the angel of the Lord says to Abraham a second time, By myself I've sworn, saying the Lord, because you've done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and the sands which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Can you imagine if your obedience and my obedience bless all the nations of the earth? Like, I think someone like Hudson Taylor, you know, he obeyed the Lord to go from England in like 1870 to go to China, had the vision to bring the gospel to millions of people who had never heard the gospel, had the vision to plant a Christian mission station in every inland province of China, contrary to anything that could have been accepted at that time, dedicated his life to it, buried children there, lost his wife, all these things. But by 1905, he had established a Christian missionary base in every province of inland China. And became a blessing to all China. And really, you know, a lot of missionaries were in China, right? Franklin, Billy Graham's wife, uh, Ruth, her parents were China, you know, missionaries in China. Eric Little, Chariots of Fire. I mean, a lot of people gave their lives for the Lord to China, which at that time was the poorest nation in the world. Between 1850, colonized by all the West, pretty much all the West. And now look at China, like, whoa. And God has a final say with everything, man. You just watch what you do. China's on the rise, right? But in that Chinese nation, communist nation, the underground church is probably the strongest church in the history of the church since the first century. So don't, ever, don't underestimate what your obedience, my obedience, can bring to other people, to the nations, even if we don't understand what God's doing. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful story of Abraham and Isaac, but there's one final thought to it, and that's found in the New Testament. And so we'll end here with the New Testament. In the book of James, chapter 2, we read, and I shared this Tuesday night as well. In James, chapter 2, we have this work of faith, which is what we've been reading about. Because Abraham offered up Isaac. He, he went for it. He did it. He didn't withhold the son. And he obeyed. And it really is a work of faith, which we see now in James, chapter 2. So in James, chapter 2, we read this. If someone says, you have faith and I have works, show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. Now, the works we're talking about, the good deeds or good works, they're not the good deeds of self-righteousness to save ourselves. They're the works that God does because we're living for the Lord. The works of faith, verse 19. You believe there is one God, and you do well. Even the demons believe, and they tremble. But do you not know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? So do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect or complete? And the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. There it is, Genesis 15, 6. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Now, again, these works are not the works of the law because that would contradict the entire Bible. But it's the works of faith. And this brings me to a closing thought for all of us. When I was in Florida last week, I got to spend time with my youngest son, Luke. It's always fun to spend time with Luke. He's, he's a genius, literally. And he's a deep thinker. Sometimes I'm talking to Luke about theology. I feel like I'm talking to Dietrich Bonhoeffer or something, some deep thinker. I'm like, gosh, Luke, this is a, I got to go for a walk, man. Like, he just... He thinks about things. He said, but he, taught, he said this, you know, Dad, so many Christians in our culture, America, they focus on being saved by grace, but they don't ever focus on going forward in the works of faith. And I said, well, like, elaborate. He's like, well, think about it, Dad. All these people that go forward at crusades and, and things this and say a prayer to receive the Lord, and they're focused on what they're getting out of, but they're not focused on what they're moving toward. And he goes, it is a narrow gate. And that how many people go to church all over America who are only focused on what they got out of but aren't focused on what they're going toward? For in Adam, now I'm talking, all sin and die. But in Christ, all are made alive. And we're, we're not, we don't work to save ourselves, but we're given positional righteousness by believing God, having imputed. But then we enter into a work, which is exactly what Ephesians 2 tells us. 
By grace you've been saved, that through faith, not of works, lest we should boast. But then we're told that incredible passage, for we are his workmanship. That is the work, which brings us back to the destiny, which brings us back to the friendship, which brings us back to the restoration of all things lost with the sin in the Garden of Eden. You and I, and everyone that's a disciple of Jesus Christ in every time zone of every ethnicity on planet Earth right now, joining the saints that came before us and those that will come after us if the Lord tarries, we're the ongoing legacy that we are a work of art. And we're more than a dream, and we're more than beyond a dream. We are a destiny. And that destiny is to be saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ from dead works. And it is to be saved to a workmanship of a life of faith that pleases God, honors God, obeys God, and is radical for God, and brings him honor and glory from here to eternity, his masterpiece, or literally in Ephesians 2.10, his work of art. And see, you can't be my work of art. Who'd want to be me? I'm a pretty unusual display in a museum, aren't I? And I can't be you. We're all our own redeemed crackpot. We are his workmanship. And that's what Luke was saying in his deeper way. That people settle for being a lump of clay and never letting God make them who they're meant to be for all eternity on display for glory. And as we read in in Romans 5, there is tribulation, there is perseverance, and there is hope, and there's character, and there's glory, and there's peace in it all. Abram, who is Abraham, chose that life. And when he offered up Isaac, he gave all of us an example of what it means to let our life be a work of faith. And when we get past just being saved by grace and doing nothing, but when we take being saved from something and saved to something and live that life to the fullest, and if you feel good about it today, good for you and good for me. If you don't, then we're on the clock. That's how we're told by Paul, redeem the time for the days are evil. Or as Elizabeth Elliot used to say, do something. Do something. But he did it. See, The real test of our redemption and the evidence of our faith, we could say it's humility and not pride, others and not self. Those are pretty obvious. But the real test is, is the acts and action of an obedient heart to the Savior, Jesus Christ. And that is the book of Acts. And that is the legacy of the church. And that's who we're meant to become. We're going from glory to glory. And, you know, the amazing thing about this is In offering up Isaac, the gospel was displayed. See, the the subtleties and the implications of the gospel were in Abraham's life in his calling all people, all families. And then by believing, it's kind of for righteousness. That's how we're saved, through faith in Jesus. And then offering up Isaac, it's the example. It's literally Isaac going up and Isaac coming down. It's the crucifixion and the resurrection. And it's all there for us. And Abraham, who's the friend of God, led his life prove his faith, his justification by faith, his life of living by faith, and he became the friend of God. And I would say in Jesus' name, we do well to do the same.